Thanks, Natalie. I didn't actually slip out of the tub. I was just adding a little style, a little flair, keep you engaged. Um, so the first two summers of uh, college, I worked. I got a job. I, moved, I was at home in the south suburbs of Chicago, and I took the metro up to the city, and I served as a a busboy at this really fancy schmancy restaurant. I had a bow tie, I had studs, I had a crummer. Do you know what a crummer is? It's this like long edge and when people are done, I, I remove the crumbs from before them. Yes, it was very schmancy, fancy schmancy and made good money. But in the junior year summer, um, I got an opportunity to serve as kind of like a big brother and with a social service agency. There were foster kids, and they assigned me uh, 12 kids, that it was my job to pick them up weekly, hang out with them, go to movies, and just be that positive influence. One of the summers was the summer that the movie, does anyone remember Honey, Honey I Shrunk the Kids? Do you remember that? Yeah. If I see that again, I think I will throw up. I mean, it was like... The good, the first five times I saw it, but all of the kids wanted it, so we did that. Now, I made about half of the money as a big brother, as a college student, that I did as a busboy, and I really needed the money. But I decided to stay as, as that big brother because it was in that time that I realized and saw the power of simple mentorship. Uh, the, the power of someone coming alongside someone maybe a little bit younger and just, and just sharing their life and their perspective, sharing laughter and fun and yet discussion. And I got to see firsthand, I mean, depending on the kid and, and where they were and oftentimes the age of the kid, but I got to see an impact. And that was part of my call to ministry because I really wanted to see life transformation. Denzel Washington, the famous actor, said this, show me a successful individual and I'll show you someone who has had a real positive influence in his or her life. I don't care what you do for a living. If you do it well, I'm sure there was someone cheering you on and showing the way a mentor. That's led to Denzel Boys and Girls Club and that mentorship, mentorship. I think it could be argued pretty effectively that Jesus was a master mentor. Would you agree with me? Like that was his life. That's what he did is he came alongside people and he poured his life into them. Now immediately we think of the 12, but actually some astute uh, scholars have said, you know, it was more than the 12. In fact, Jesus was very strategic. He had an inner three. Did you know that? He had a uh, Peter and James and John. And to them, there's a few times when he, he just brought those three and he did additional work. He, he poured himself in a special way to those three. Then, of course, he had the 12 and he was discipling. He was, he was really sharing life, pouring life into the 12. But he also had a 72. 
that he was engaged with them enough, not as much as the 12, but engaged with them enough that there was a time when he said, okay, you've been watching me do this stuff. 72, I'm going to send you out to do the stuff. That those 72 were mentored by Jesus, perhaps not as closely, but they were influenced and taken by Jesus. And then, of course, the crowd, the people he here healed and cared for, and loved, and taught, and explained, and did miracles. In one sense, he was mentoring or discipling that, that wider group. In fact, it, it's some of the final words that he said is significant. He said, all authority, before he was ascended into heaven, he says, all authority has been given to me, therefore go and make a lot of money. Wait, that's not, that's not what he, is he? Oh, he said, I'm sorry. He said, therefore, go and build big churches. Therefore, go and, and have sweet ministries and all. What did he say? Go make disciples. It was really significant for me. I've shared this before. A number of years ago, in Ministry 3DM, they said, if you build churches, sometimes you'll get disciples. If you make disciples, then you always get the church. That refocused my life and ministry. Now, we've been walking through Acts and we've been looking at how the early church did different things. Like last week, we, we looked at how they handled conflict, conflict and a theological dispute. We've, we've looked at how they preached the gospel, their fellowship together. This morning, I'd like us to look at how the early church responded to Jesus' great commission, responded to his life as a model of mentoring and discipleship. And then what I'd like to do is to make some observations about our church today and the greater church and compare it to how the early church is responding to this call to discipleship and mentorship. So we're going to start at Acts 18. Would you turn with me, if you will? We're going to start at uh, verse 24. Just a little bit of background. I'm just going to read a, a snippet here, but we're going to meet Priscilla and Aquila here, they were a, a power couple in ministry. They did ministry together. In fact, um, they, I, I think it was in uh, Corinth that they met Paul and became tent makers. They, they made tents uh, for their income and yet were discipled by Paul and then shared in the ministry of the gospel. And in fact, they would eventually have a church that would meet in their home. Right, so they're this neat couple. Uh, Paul was traveling with them, and we're told he leaves Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus to minister to the church that's uh, just uh, starting to grow in Ephesus. All right, and then Paul goes to Antioch, and real subtly, he he begins his third missionary trip, his third church planting trip, and we pick up the story at verse twenty-four. It says. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus, where Aquila and Priscilla were left. He was a learned man, this is Apollos, with a thorough knowledge 
of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately. Though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogues when Priscilla and Aquila heard him. They invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more accurately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and the sisters, those in Ephesus, encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed the church of the disciples in Achaia. For he vigorously refuted the Jews, Jewish opponents, in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived back at Ephesus, where Priscilla and Aquila are. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we have not even heard of that, that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Probably they had been connected to Apollos, right? In Ephesus, prior to Apollos being discipled, mentored by Priscilla and Aquila. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, baptized with water, like we just saw this morning. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. All right, we're we're just going to read that segment. I want you to notice a couple things. First of all, I want you to notice, did you see the, the chain of mentorship. Did you see the chain of discipleship that was happening in this just little snippet of scripture? First, you had Paul, I told you about, he had discipled Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla and Aquila, here Apollos, invite him into his home. They disciple him. He has a desire to go and share the, the more fullness of this message with the disciples in Achaia. So he goes there, and then we pick up the story. Paul comes to Ephesus, and he finds 12 believers, and he disciples them in the fullness of the gospel. There's a lot of mentoring and discipleship going on. It's as if they knew what Jesus' great commandment was. It's as if they took seriously his words to us. It's as if the early church had a culture. And part of that culture of faith was discipleship and mentoring. It's who they were. It's who they saw themselves to be, that they were sharing, mentoring. They were pouring their lives in the people that came into contact with them. Think about Apollos 
for just a moment. A, a pretty neat figure. We don't have too much about his life. We know he was from the, the second most significant city in the Roman Empire at the time, Alexandria in Egypt. Alexandria had this really predominant and well-known, worldwide-known university there. Probably Apollos was either from or influenced by that university, right? And, and Luke says he, he, was a, he, he had a thorough knowledge of Scripture. He was instructed in the way of the Lord. He, he spoke with a boldness and a fervor. He was an orator. He was an apologist, right? There, there's power to him. And yet, there's a quality about Apollos that isn't specifically said in the text, but I want us to notice, because I think this quality is essential for us if we're going to have a culture of discipleship. And despite Apollos' uh, gifts and skills and training and study, when he's invited by Priscilla and Aquila to learn the fullness of the message, he had a humility that said, yeah, I'd really like to learn. What, yes, I, I, I'd like to enter in and, and hear and be transformed, to, to understand. You see, he had this incomplete picture of the gospel. We're going to talk about that more, what that might have been, that incomplete picture. And yet he had this humility despite his gifts and skill and education to be a lifelong learner, do we have that quality that Apollos so powerfully demonstrates here? Also think about Priscilla and Aquila for just a moment, right? They, they see and hear, they're, imagine them in a synagogue and they're hearing the, this passionate presentation from the Old Testament. Apollos was probably pulling out scriptures of the Old Testament going there and they're like, you know, he doesn't know the whole story of the gospel. And what do they do? They don't stand up and say, dude, you have it incomplete, right? They, they didn't jump on, uh, they didn't uh, tweet out, Apollos is, he's, no, don't listen to him. He needs to go back to the university at Alexandria and be, no, what did they do? They invited him into his home, into their home, and they said, hey, let's talk about Jesus. Let's talk about the gospel. Let's talk about the Holy Spirit. What they're doing is they're exhibiting this, this gracious willingness to share their lives with someone else. They didn't do it in a challenging way, in an aggressive way, they did it in kindness and love. And when you mix a humility and a desire to learn with a gracious willingness to disciple and pour your life, boy, you're going to get a really dynamic relationship. Yes? And what I suggest, you're going to get a really dynamic church if we all held those. Another neat uh, neat part of the story is that Priscilla and Aquila, Priscilla is listed first, which some would say that's pretty neat. She was probably the primary discipler. She probably was the one who influenced Apollos more. 
All right, let me ask you this question. What would it look like if our church today, Springs Community Church, began to take upon those qualities of humility, lifelong learners, gracious willingness to share our lives with other, others. What if we took that, that posture of mentoring and discipleship and, a, and this commitment, how would that transform our church? I think in powerful and significant ways. It would take all of us. It would take a desire to do that. The book of Hebrews, um, many people question who wrote the book of Hebrews. It's not assigned to anyone. The, the ancient church thought that it was probably Paul. You have a lot of Pauline ideas in, in the book of Hebrews. Others have argued that it was Apollos, like Martin Luther did. I tend to agree with Martin Luther because it does have some Pauline elements like Apollos was discipled by Paul or discipled by Priscilla and Aquila who were discipled by Paul. But also, you've got some interesting themes in Hebrews that Apollos' life seems to represent. For example, the author of Hebrews, if it was Apollos, he was writing to the Christian churches and he like um, kind of addresses them on the subject of mentoring and discipleship and spiritual transformation. And he's saying, kind of a little bit harshly, you're not getting the job done. You're not growing. You're not training yourself. He says this, this is Hebrews 5, 12 and 14. He says, do we have that? Yes. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers... You've been in the faith long enough. You need someone to teach you again the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk being still an infant is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. You're missing the central aspects of the teaching of discipleship. That's spiritual transformation. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. He's saying, folks, let's get it done. Now that can be hard for some of us to hear. But I hope inspiring for some of us to hear that discipleship and spiritual formation and transformation is meant to be a central part of our lives as Christians, let me put it this way. Apollos, if he was the author of Hebrews, was inviting them to move from simply Christians to disciples. You know what I mean? To move from casual engagement with the faith to continual engagement with the faith. He's inviting us to to move beyond shallow friendships and fellowships, fellowship in the church to a deep and abiding transformational, some would say sacred friendships in the church. He's inviting us to a depth of relationship, a depth of community that we would be transforming 
ourselves as we seek to be a part of God's transforming work in others. He's exhorting them. If I were to gauge our church and community scale of 1 to 10, right? how are we doing on this discipleship piece, this mentoring piece? I'm going to have a little grace with us because it's COVID time, right? You might, some of you might disagree, but I would give us a five. I would give us a five as a church. That we do have Bible studies, kingdom life communities. We have uh, huddles, uh, apprentice huddles that I'm going to talk about. And, and so I, I think we're doing a fair job. But one of the values of our 2025 vision is deep spiritual formation. That we want to be a church that takes spiritual formation seriously, that's committing time and energy and focus to spiritual formation. Wouldn't it be awesome if by 2025 that we were up and I got to say, you know, I'd rank us about an eight and a half or nine. Wouldn't that be so neat if we we're seeing that kind of mentorship and discipleship happening, and not just adult ministry. What if our children's ministry was focused on mentorship? What if our youth ministry was? Actually, our youth ministry is probably higher than our our church in, in mentoring and discipleship. What would it look like if we brought these continual attributes of humility and a gracious willingness to learn and transform and sacrifice some of our time and energy and focus to others and their relationship and growth in the faith. How powerful would that be? I'm just going to mention real briefly, you'll hear more details about it, is that we are going to start something, a more public ministry that we've done really kind of just uh, subtly with leaders, we've done things called, we've called them apprentice huddles. And that has been our focus of discipleship and leadership development. And so uh, this, uh, in about a month, is it September yet? No. Next month, mid-month, we're going to start a more public, instead of doing our kingdom courses, because we are trying to be mindful of the virus, we're going to do an immersion experience, a taster of these apprentice huddles. It's going to be on Wednesday nights, and we want to invite you there. No meal. We'll do live stream and in person. We're calling them kingdom ambassadors. When I shared that with the staff, they rolled their eyes. But come on, the ambassador is in Scripture, right? Wouldn't you want to learn and grow to become an ambassador of the kingdom of God? Yes? This will be a foundation for you. Would you simply pray about that next step? I know it's not for everyone. We, we, all of us don't have the time. All of us are involved. But would you pray about would this be the right season for you to step into this leadership development and discipleship mentoring way of kingdom ambassadors? Okay. All right. Now I want to say one more thing about discipleship in the early church in my comparison to, um, to us today. I want you to just be mindful of this, is that I believe that the Western church, the church in the West, has equated knowledge 
with discipleship. And yes, knowledge is an important part of discipleship and mentoring, but it's only one part. A biblical view of mentoring and discipleship is that you share your life with another person. Look at, for example, Paul, who discipled Timothy so much he referred to him as a son in the faith. He said this about Timothy, I am reminded of your sincere faith, which lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice. And I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, she's probably referring to the Holy Spirit, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So he's saying, Timothy, look at the, the heritage of faith. Your mom, your grandmother, they poured their lives into you. I have laid my hands. That was probably Timothy's Pentecost experience when he's filled and baptized with the Spirit. I poured myself into your life. Now, he's encouraging Timothy. Now take all that heritage and lead the church. Pour your life into others. We have a beautiful picture of that in Renee and Jessica. I hope I don't embarrass you, Renee or Jessica, but that was a mentoring relationship that happened with someone who wasn't a Christian yet. It was evangelistic mentoring, if you will, right? It wasn't contagious or uh, cantankerous. <laughs> it was contagious, though, wasn't it, Jessica? And really, it was Renee just not sharing perspective, which she was, simply knowledge. She was sharing her life. And a friendship began. There's a power in that friendship and mentoring. That was truth of, true of my life. It was my mom and my sister were my early mentors and my father, not to the same degree as my mom and sister were. And then I, I had other leaders that mentored there. All right. Timothy's discipleship experience was more than simply knowledge. But it was also, uh, and it was more than simply community, but it was a discipleship in the spirit. It was a mentoring about the spirit. That's what these passages so powerfully reveal as well. It was discipleship in the Spirit and about the Spirit. Repeat that with me. In the Spirit and about the Spirit. In the Spirit and about the Spirit. You see this discipleship happening. You also see, I added verse 8 because it was in the kingdom of God, right? Do you see that in verse 8? Paul said, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly, therefore, three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. So the discipleship was about, was about the kingdom, was about Jesus, the Messiah, and was about the Holy Spirit. I was challenged one time by a leader that said, you know, 
Um, the Spirit is a tool that we use in the garden of the kingdom of God. We're not meant to disciple about the Spirit. I disagree. The early church did that. The early church had a Trinitarian mentoring and discipleship process. So, we see powerfully Paul discipling in the Spirit and about the Spirit. Now, let me ask this question. What was Apollos and the disciples in Ephesus lacking? What were they missing from the story? You look again in Scripture, right? Now, we're not 100% sure, but you can use the passage of Scripture to begin to understand they un only understood at this point, maybe a little bit different, Apollos versus the 12 uh, disciples in Ephesus, the, the baptism of John. They had, first and foremost, an incomplete view of Jesus as the Messiah. It wasn't necessarily inaccurate. In fact, we're told that Apollos taught accurately about uh, Jesus, but there wasn't a, a fullness. John's baptism was about repentance. The baptism you just experienced with Jessica, yes, that involves repentance and, and, and leaving the old life. But that's just the beginning of Jesus' baptism. Jesus' baptism is also about new life in him today. Can you imagine... Priscilla and Aquila inviting Apollos over and saying, listen, Apollos, we have some awesome news. The gospel isn't just about repentance, but the gospel is also about new life with Christ Jesus right now. Yes, he was the Messiah who came and was resurrected and ascended, but you get to live life in him, the life he died for you to have. That's about it. I wonder if Apollos was like, yes, let me go to Archaea and tell everybody about this. A fullness of that expression. Um, this does remind me of my first year in college when I went to college as a believer, as a Christian. But then as I got involved in a Bible study in the dorm room and I was reading about Jesus and his life in John, I realized there was far more to this Christian life than confessing Jesus as my Savior and then keeping my nose clean for the rest of my life and trying to be a nice person. That Jesus was calling me to a life of discipleship, a life of sacrifice and love. And so I went to a field and prayed, Lord, I'm sorry, I've, I've missed so much. I've said I'm a Christian, but really I... I long to be a disciple, a follower of you. I give you my life back. Huge moment for me in that moment. Now, there's a second part of the incompleteness that the Apollos, Apollos and we especially see the 12 disciples in Ephesus, and that was about the Holy Spirit. We're not told all the details of the question, 
of everything happening, but we are told of the question that Paul asks the 12. Did you see that in the text? He says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? That is revealing so much. Why would Paul ask that? He was saying, I'm not seeing the manifest presence and power of the Spirit in your life. You see, Jesus' baptism isn't just about the removal of sin, it's the bestowing of the Spirit. Did you know that? And they're like, what are you talking about? We have the, the holy who? I, we haven't heard about how, yeah, this is like an essential part of the, of the Christian faith, he was saying. Now, this is how I would put together from Paul's writings elsewhere. This is how I would put together his discipling about the Spirit of God to the 12 in Ephesus. He would say perhaps when he says in Romans 8, 9, you know, you can't be saved without the Spirit. He says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. Paul might have also said, yeah, when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus in John 3, he probably didn't have John 3 at the time, but when he's talking to Nicodemus, he said, you have to be born again. Right? Your, your mom, flesh gives birth to flesh. That, that's a physical birth. But it's the spirit that gives birth to spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that enters into your life and gives new life here. Spirit gives birth to spirit. That's what it means to be Christian. Not, not church attendance or if your parents were Christians. No, no, no. What it means to be Christian, what baptism represents is that moment that Jessica gave her life to Christ the Holy Spirit entered her life and brought new life here. Yes? I imagine if he would have shared that, the 12 disciples in Ephesus would have said, well, if you can't be a Christian without having the Holy Spirit, then why did you ask if we received the Holy Spirit? You should know that. Hmm? What do you think his response would have been? I'm not talking about salvation. I'm not talking about when the moment that spirit enters your heart and soul. I'm talking about Pentecost. What's Pentecost? Okay, I'll explain that. I'm talking about when these Christians were empowered by the Spirit. That's what I'm asking you about. I'm not asking about salvation and baptism with water. I'm asking you about when the Spirit, that's part of the promise. The Spirit empowers your life to live this new life. I would imagine the disciples in Ephesus would say, bring it on. That's awesome. Wait, yeah, we didn't know the full story. We want that. We, we long for that. You know, John, the Baptist, he actually talked about a key part of Jesus' ministry when he said this. This is Matthew 3.11. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance. They knew that part. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. That's what they were missing. 
And John wasn't talking about just when Jesus returns and comes again. He was talking about now, the empowerment for life. So what does Paul do? He baptizes them in water as a symbol of salvation. And then what does he do? She's my wife, so I can lay hands on her. He lays hands on them. And they receive the baptism. It's their Pentecost moment. See that? Let me say one more thing about this. I, think of it like this. Jesus' baptism has a promise and a gift. Look at your neighbor and say promise and gift. Promise and gift. Promise and gift. He wants you to experience the promise and the gift. What's the promise? The promise, I already talked about that when I baptized Jessica. It's the promise of eternal life. What's the gift? The gift is the gift of the Holy Spirit, the, the Father's gift, which is the Holy Spirit. Look at what uh, Peter says. The first time he preaches the gospel, he says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise of eternal life is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God calls. It's a promise. He said, if you confess me, I will confess you. If you give your life to me, I will walk with you now and forevermore. I will forgive your sins. I will renew your life. I will teach you and disciple you. But then there is the idea of the gift. Remember what Jesus said about Pentecost. He said this. It says, on one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem but wait for the, the gift my father promised. You could say it's another promise. It's okay. Which you have heard me speak about. There's a promise and there's a gift. Okay, friends. I want us to think about the fullness of this text and this passage and how it applies to you. All right, I'm going to give you a little bit of time to reflect on that. In fact, Jedediah, if you want to, if the worship team wants to come forward. And I want you to ask, there's some of you that the Lord is inviting to new life in him. He's inviting you to confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. He's inviting you to do that. And I'm gonna invite you, if you feel led to do that, our elders, we've got Tracy and Scott and Kurt, if you wanna just come forward, would you guys just raise your hands so people know who you are? If you want to come, um, why don't you guys sit in the inner circle if that's okay, if there's space. Um, 
And, uh, and as we're worshiping and praying, if you want to receive Christ, um, Katie, um, then, then would you tell them, I, I, I want to invite Christ into my life. I want to do what Jessica did. I want to answer those two questions, that he would be my Savior and my Lord. If that's you, we can baptize you later. We won't do it today, but we'll baptize you later. Okay? There's another thing that I want you to pray about whether God is inviting you. This picture of discipleship, this, this picture of moving beyond simply being a Christian and being a disciple, this humility to be a lifelong learner, this desire to have a, this, this kindness and this willingness to pour your life out. It might be that you want to be discipled more or you want to be used. You want to sacrifice time and attention to others to be a part of being disciple, discipling others. I think it would be so beautiful if the elders, the leaders prayed for that discipleship and that mentoring piece. And, and the elders will ask if they need to not lay their hands, they can hover their hands above you, okay? We'll be, keep masks on, please, right? And then this third piece I want you to pray about is some of you have received the presence of the Spirit. You are Christians, But if Paul were looking at your life, he might ask, have you ever received the empowerment of the Spirit? And if God's prompting you there to, to ask for the empowerment of the Spirit, Paul uses this word, filling. It's interesting, he writes, Later to the church in the book of uh, Ephesians, to the church in Ephesus, he says, don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled. Maybe some of those 12 read that letter and they would have been like, oh yeah, that was really important. Like we were empowered and now that same empowerment, that same baptism, we get to pray for the filling of that of the Spirit. Today, that's not a one-time deal. We get to keep asking for that. Filling of the Spirit. If no one wants to be prayed, if there's an available elder, I almost always ask to be filled anew. Right? Salvation is a one-time thing. We're not going to re-dunk Jessica. That's done. But the filling of the Spirit is meant to happen again and again and again. Yes? Let's pray. So Holy Spirit, we want to give you space. We want to give you time. Would you minister to us here in this worship center at home Lord, what are you saying to us? Would you give us ears to hear? Lord, 
if there's anyone that you're inviting to give their lives to you, even to recommit their lives. They've wandered from you and they want to recommit their lives or give their lives for the very first time. Would you prompt them to be prayed for by now? Lord, if there's the heart that heard the call to discipleship, to mentoring our children, other children, and adults to be mentored, to be discipled. Lord, would you prick the heart of those and would you draw them to be prayed for? And Lord, for those who long or thirsty for the streams of living water to be filled again or maybe for the first time baptized in the Spirit, would you draw them?